Hi, everyone. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It's very early in the morning here in Israel, January 18th, 2022, 16th day of Shvat, 5782. I hope that if you celebrated the birthday of the trees yesterday on Tubi Shvat, that it was uh, fun for you and that you didn't eat too much dried fruit or today, yeah, anyway just a very practical person. Um, But it is really, it's cold here. It's clear, but it's really cold here Um, in Israel, where I live here in the Judean Hills, even saying we were having cold air and we're having precipitation. And if the two do meet, they're thinking possibly sometime tomorrow, we might even get some snow flurries, which if you're sitting like in the northeastern part of the United States or in Canada or some of these other places where I'm seeing vast amounts of snow, then you're thinking, uh-huh, well, you're looking forward to that. But here it's fun because it usually doesn't stick and lasts a day and it's just enough for the kids to really have a good time. So we'll see what the next week brings. I actually was not supposed to be here. Um, those of you may remember that I've been talking with great excitement and anticipation about the trip to Egypt that Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman is running. And as it turns out, they did go yesterday, and I hope they have an incredible time. But I was not on the plane because, no, not COVID, although, well, it's not clear, an ear infection. Who the heck gets an ear infection as an adult? But it turns out that I have one that's not going away and therefore couldn't fly. Um, Why did I say maybe with the COVID? Because this is a little known side effect of the Omicron is that um, it's going into the ears. There's an uptick in, in ear infections in adults. So while I didn't think I had, I was sick, I, I'm not, never, I didn't have like fever or anything like that, never tested positive in any of the tests that I've been taking, it's possible that a few weeks ago or a couple of weeks ago, I had a mild case and it settled in my ear. I don't know. I'll probably never know. Um, but in the meantime, this is where it is. So I guess there's a timing for everything. And if I'm not supposed to be in Egypt, I'm not in Egypt, but I am quite disappointed. And I really hope that they have a great time and I, that I will be able to go um, sometime in the future because it's like the ultimate field trip to go and to see all the archaeology and to connect it with like the Tanakh and all of that. Um, so yeah, that's my disappointment for the week. My non-disappointment for the week is that I got a letter from Bar-Ilan University, not only saying that I fulfilled all the requirements and I earned my master's degree in Land of Israel Studies and Archaeology, but I did it with honors. So I'm really excited because I'm not so young anymore, wasn't sure that the old brain was working. And it was in Hebrew. And it was really a challenging thing. And, and to do it in just a little over a year. But um, but I'm happy. And I have tremendous amounts of knowledge now, like swir- swirling around my brain. Some of it I'm about to share with you guys because it's got, it's got to like come out somewhere. Although, although, although I must say that thankfully, um, I'm getting starting to get some bookings. People are tentatively thinking about actually coming to Israel when all this insanity is over. I don't even want to get into the policies of the government and we're open and we're not open and people are in, um, isolation, but maybe we'll let them out of isolation. I've got, um, some of my family uh, in are, are sick, although it's mild, and I'll be uh, doing the 
the Jewish mommy thing and cooking for them today and bringing them food and just leaving it by the door. Won't even get to see their cute faces. But um, it's like, it's just insane. Traffic is down, which is good because people don't know what to do. But it's really a little wild, um, probably where you guys are as well. I know I've got listeners in Australia, like a 180 down under. I I don't. Anyway, it doesn't look, uh, I wouldn't want to be a leader um, of any country in any capacity these days because nobody just knows what to do at all. And hopefully it'll just pass quickly and people won't get really sick and we'll all get this herd immunity and be done with it. So um, if you want to know if your ear is hurting you and you're thinking it's just really weird because you haven't had an ear infection since you were two, which I think pretty much is my category, then um, don't laugh. It actually could be Omicron. So whatever, crazy stuff. Um, but I'm grounded and that's that story. Uh, but anyway, um, so yes, so I started to say that there are people though starting to book and I'm really excited. And, um, if you're interested in coming here, love to take you around. I got a lot of colleagues as well, whose calendars are just waiting to be filled up despite what our finance minister said about us getting uh, new professions. We're still hanging on to this one because we love what we do. And it's a super important thing to do. So, so come on back. And if not, I'm welcome. I'm very happy to come to your church or synagogue. Not afraid to. I heard some people saying that, that maybe people should be like worried about after what happened in Texas a couple days ago, be worried about coming to synagogues. We can't live like that. We just can't live like that. So I'm happy to come in. Um, I'm on Mizrahi's, uh, Speakers Bureau, happy to come in separately. For when is all fun, all kinds of arrangements can be made. Um, obviously not now, but like more towards the spring. And um, oh, and speaking of Tubishvat, I found out that Mizrahi reran a program that I did about um, fruit in the land of Israel yesterday. I think they still have it online. So that was fun to hear. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm feeling like a little bit of anticipation that maybe, just maybe, Life is getting somewhat back to normal at some point, or at least we're thinking about it getting back to normal. And I'll be able to go back to doing what I really love to do, aside, obviously, from this podcast, right? Okay. Anyway, what I wanted to share with you today, though, was um, the seminar, part of the seminar report, the last report that I had to write for my degree, which was a relook at Masada. And the reason I chose that one, as opposed to some of the more esoteric things that I did reports on, is because I'm figuring that a lot of you who are listening have been to Israel. And if you came to Israel, chances are very high that you went down to Masada. At least it was before the pandemic, the number one paid entry site in Israel. I think the number one visited site is the Kotel, which makes sense, but you don't have to pay to go there. Uh, At least not yet. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Anyway, so I just, um, this is based on a, on, um, on work on research that one of my professors did, although I did not learn this in his class, actually. I did the research for this on my own, but came across a lot of what he was doing, Professor Zohar Amar. Some of you might remember that a few months ago, I did a podcast, which a lot of you really enjoyed. I got some great letters for that, from that on um, what was going on here during the early Arab period, um, what was growing and all kinds of like fascinating information. It was mainly about the agriculture, um, but not only. Anyhow, he's an amazing 
amazing brain. Uh, sadly, I'm not going to be able to have him on a podcast or on a webinar because he doesn't think his English is good enough. That, by the way, is an issue that I have here. There's a lot of people whom I know whose English is just fine, but because it's not on the level of their Hebrew, um, so they, they feel uncomfortable you know, being interviewed, um, especially on when it's just audio, as many of you might understand, right? When you're, when it's just audio, there's only the voice. There's nothing to distract you. Like when you watch a show or you see some kind of video, you can, you know, there's some kind of body language that's going on. So you're not just focused on the speed or level of the person's language skills. So it's not like that when it comes to audio. And, and so there's some really incredible people here in Israel that I would just love to interview. Um, but they, they won't do it because, um, because of their English anyway. So, um, but so uh, he gets full credit on this one because he's really, he's put out some incredible articles, most of them in Hebrew. I read them in Hebrew. Um, uh, you could try and Google, I suppose, and see if the, if anything was translated into English. Professor Zohar Mar. Anyway, he lives in the Shamron in a place called Nevet Suf. Um, you know, religious man, also like incredibly knowledgeable about secular sources, secular historical sources, and also the Jewish sources. And he, if you heard about the purple thread, the, pur- the purple dye, the argaman that was found in Timna a few months ago, which shows that there was a person of stature at the copper mining 3000 years ago, because the colors that you wore signified your social status because you couldn't afford at them otherwise, because the, the dyes were so expensive. Also, the tzchelet and the red, the tola'at, uh, chani. Anyway, I don't want to go down that tangent. That's a whole different other show and exciting thing to talk about. But um, anyway, so that's where he's very much at the forefront of a lot of these different things. And so it was really something that I read that he wrote that kicked off this uh, this idea for my report. So what is this whole thing? So Masada, for those of you who know, and for those of you who don't know, is a palace fortress uh, located at the very tip, at the southwestern tip of the Dead Sea. And um, initially, at least according to Josephus, and most of the information we have comes from Josephus, initially it was built by the Hashmonaim. Uh, they may have found some remnants of the Hashmonaim, but nothing definitive. But the, the key to it is that um, there was a, there were Romans up there and then, and, uh, at, at some point afterwards, but Herod builds it between minus 37 and minus 31. And that means that it's at the very beginning of his reign as the king of Judea, of Judah, um, starts in minus 37. What happens in minus 31, of course, is the tremendously important battle of Actium, where Cleopatra and Mark Antony lose to Octavian, who's also known as Augustus, the Caesar, um, and uh, end up, and that's a whole other thing, end up dying. Although I did find out during the course of my research, it's unclear that story that we've all heard about Cleopatra. She, they bring her a basket of figs and there's an asp in there, like a little kind of snake and it bites her and she dies. It's unclear actually how Cleopatra dies. It's, um, it's only one source and it could be that somebody killed her, which actually kind of makes sense because um, she was she bothered a whole lot of people. And in those days, that's what you did. I'm so glad we've come so far from that. Anyway, so that's a whole like mysterious thing. Um, most Egyptologists now think that actually that 
there was some kind of toxic cream that was put on her because some of her maidservants also died with her. So that would be an unusual event. In any event, leaving that, she dies then. And Egypt kind of goes, oh, I'm going to be talking about Egypt today, even though I'm not there. Egypt kind of goes out of the importance for our purposes. And of course, Rome is ascendant and Herod very much is a vassal king of Rome and does a tremendous amount during his reign to kind of prove to Rome that we're loyal and there are no wars here for the long time, for the entire time of his reign. Uh, He dies in minus four for 33 years and uh, no unemployment. And Judea is really like on the map in many, many ways, Um, can, can have a tremendous discussion, and I do that when I'm with people for for a day, about how that corresponds to today. There's so much, and that's that's very much a theme of mine, is like looking at historical events and and connecting them to things happening today, because people are people, and power is power, and money is money, and uh, a lot of things end up repeating themselves. You'd think we would learn from other people's mistakes, but that doesn't usually happen. In any event, so he builds Masada, And Masada is very not Roman in style, which makes sense. The predominant color is blue as opposed to some of the other places, like Herodian, which is red, which is associated with Octavian, because cinnabar, which is the red, um, where the source of the red dye at the time, is mined in his hometown. So there's very much a color element here also, not just in terms of your status, but in terms of emotions and connecting to people and reminding people. We all know that color can really do that. So not any more so than in that time. Any event, back to Masada. So um, where Masada, the, where the story of Masada is really focused on when people go down to Masada is how the story ends. So you have Herod up there with his palace, and then you probably have at some point some Romans up there. And then the Judeans, the ones who are running from the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, Josephus calls them the Zealots, they come down there in the late 60s. And they also then come off there and destroy the village of En Gedi. This is an important part of the story. Uh, killing the Jews there, disrupting some of the, ag- pulling some of the agriculture up and uh, taking the food, of course, and then going back up to Masada. En Gedi is just a few kilometers north. It's an oasis on the, on the, um, on the west side of the Dead Sea, a freshwater oasis. As a matter of fact, when it rains here where I live, a lot of the water ends up down in En Gedi. So we're totally connected when you, when you, it's really the eastern side of Gush Etzion, if you look up from a um, from a bird's eye view, which was the subject of another paper that I wrote a few months ago, connecting the Bar Kokhba letters and Ein Gedi, and a lot of what happened here in that revolt. But that's not for today's show. Anyway, so you have um, so you have this going on in Masada. You have the people that are there, and then, at least according to Josephus, was the only source that we have on this. In either seventy three or seventy four, the tenth legion goes down. Um, the Jews have been pretty much routed out of a lot of other parts of the land. This, of course, is the Great Revolt that started in sixty six. The temple was destroyed in seventy. Herodian goes down. Michvar Macharis goes down. All these different places that the Jews are seeking refuge go down. And Masada, which is deep into the desert, last refuge, is destroyed by the 10th Legion, um, by uh, Flavia Silva, uh, either in 73 or 74. It's not clear. And there's 969 Jews that are up there. Um, A couple of women and children survive, and they're the ones who go to Josephus and tell them the story of what happens. 
Fine, good. So um, what happens is that they're not killed by the Romans, of course. They, they commit suicide. There's a, there's a phenomenal speech that's given by Elazar ben Yair, um, the leader, uh, saying that better to kill ourselves than to fall into the hands of the Romans and be slaves and who knows what else. And so each man kills his family and then the men kill each other and one person commits suicide. But it's basically considered a mass suicide. Um, and the Jewish sources don't talk about it. And the way that I've learned it over the years, and I'm sure you guys heard that as well, is because a suicide is not a good thing. And they don't want to talk about that. It could be that they didn't know about it either about with all the chaos going on, but um, that they didn't want to promote suicide in any way as the answer to any to anything. The Romans don't talk about it. And the accepted explanation for that is that because it was like a big embarrassment, they needed this whole legion and Jewish slaves and a whole bunch of other people and then they don't even have the satisfaction, if you will, of of killing the Jews, raping the Jews, taking them into slavery. It's just they get up there and everything's quiet and, and everybody's dead. And the Jews have even burnt their things up there to show, and there's still food in the storehouses to show that they weren't starved out. And it's really kind of like a from beyond the grave insult to Rome. So Zohar Mar connects this actually to, and this is where I got involved, because as many of you know, I've been completely fascinated by the Judean balsam, by the Afar Saman oil in ways that I totally cannot explain. Um, the very expensive and therapeutic plant that grew down there. And most of my report actually goes into the history of the plant, which I will not talk to you about now. The different sources that talk about it, both the biblical, the Baum of Gilad, um, the Greek sources, the, the, the horticulturists and the historians um, from, from, from Greece, that, and many, many, many pages uh, and many, a lot of research on all the different sources and in what context they're talking about the balsam, if it's as a medicine. And don't laugh, but just to jump ahead, and some of you know this because I've done shows on this before, it's now growing again in Kibbutz Amog, and I have here in my house a special oil that Guy Ehrlich has made to help alleviate the worst symptoms of COVID. Um, I'm about to bring it actually to, to one of my kids today. I have some jars that he made up, including the Afar Simon oil. And uh, there are many people who swear by that, that it, that it helped them get over the sickness. So there's still, and there's a lot of research going on now about it also. Um, anyway, the, the, old, the sources sometimes talk about it in terms of its phenomenal smell the smell of, of the world to come and all kinds of things. Others talk about in terms of its healing properties, definitely a valuable commodity that only the Judeans knew how to grow. Um, and there are different questions about what exactly it was. Was it a plant that the plant that originally the Queen of Sheba brought to King Solomon? Was it the Balm of Gilad, which is not where she comes from? She comes from Arabia. Was it something that was kind of tinkered with by the Judeans here? Like they got this basic plant from one place or the other, and they just kind of and like played with it a little bit to make it uh, super specified for the areas in which they were growing it, which is essentially Jericho and Ein Gedi, the very, uh, you know, below sea level, very, very arid and hot and dry uh, area there near the Dead Sea with a specific kind of rock. And they got it to grow. But the key here is that they're the only ones who knew how to grow it, to grow it. And so all through time, 
um, if it's be the Babylonians, if it's later on the Romans. So the Jews that know how to grow it are kept alive because they can provide it. Of course, now they're providing it to, not to themselves, but to the, whoever the, the, the monarchy is. Um, and of course, during the time of the Hasmoneans, when we were the monarchy, monarchy uh, so that was a, that was a very big deal. And it was part of the um, essence, the ktoret, the the incense mix of the temple. So it was really needed for that. And a lot of people did use it for ritual purposes. Um, and also even like, then you could also take not just the resin from the plant, but like the woody leaves, the xylobalsam, the, the, the leaves and the, the branches of the plant itself. So what there are is proof of the, um, of the balsam was found on Masada. The only written proof, actually. There's been other things that were found. They found the terraces, of course, tons of writings about it. Um, they had found a perfume factory that looks like it was uh, used for that. In other places also, they have found like agricultural pits and, and drains and all kinds of things that used like the, that they were, that looked look like they were used in the manufacture of it. It is on Masada, though, that we have written proof of it in like what the Romans left where they talk about, they talk about the, the balsam and its medicinal qualities. And you also have a jar that was found there that has the Hebrew, obviously, um, you know, uh, a clay, um, where it has the Hebrews le- letters, kuf, tet, pe, yud, katafi, katifi, meaning somebody who picks it. Um, so maybe it belonged to them. And so the theory here is now, just to cut to the chase, um, that, that Zahramar put out is that the 10th Legion did not go down to Masada in order to get rid of this last embers of resistance of the Jews. They were already down there. And the reason that they were down there was to protect the balsam fields in Ein Gedi from the Jews on Masada. Because as I mentioned a few minutes ago, they had come down at some point and kind of messed with the people in Masada and maybe that uh, in Ein Gedi. And maybe that's why. Because if it is these same zealots that had been in Jerusalem, they had already gone on record, at least according to Josephus, as having killed other Jews for um, on suspicion that they were betraying Jews to the Romans, okay, and uh, or that they weren't participating fully in the revolt. In which case, you could see the fact that they would see the Jews who were in Ein Gedi after the Romans take over. Um, and they are now toiling, uh, to produce this beautiful balsam, but not anymore for the Judeans. They're doing it for Rome. Uh, Rome took this super seriously. They paraded the plants of the balsam, um, in Rome to show that they had conquered Judea. There is also now some evidence that on the famous Arch of Titus, where the main picture is the menorah being taken out of Jerusalem, and you know how how uh, how Jerusalem had been destroyed. That it seems to be faded now, but there are sketches of the Arch of Titus from before that show women holding like some kind of plant. And the theory is maybe that they were actually showing the Afarsamon plant, the balsam plant. I'm using the words interchangeably, and that just shows you how important this was to Rome. Um, and uh, so it's not beyond the pale to think that the Jews up in Masada are going to actually kill or at least try and disrupt in any way they can what's going on in Ein Gedi so that the Romans can't get a hold of it. And I titled my paper, The um, 
the symbols of power and the power of symbolism, because oh, she could say so, like it was a perfume, so fine. But it was more than that. Um, the Hasmoneans had really developed it tremendously to be like the boutique product coming out of Judea. Yes, their symbol was the date palm. And that's why you also see it on the Roman coins, uh, Judea Copta coins and Judea Recepta coins. You see the date palm as the symbol of Judea. But it was really like the, 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 um, you know, like the Chanel number five, if you will, or the combination of, you know, like we talk about, uh, I don't know, Italian cars and Irish linen and Murano glass. So Judean, people who knew nothing about Judea knew about Judean balsam. So it was more than just uh, a product. It was more than just a commodity, even though at some point, at some points in time, it was the most expensive commodity in, in the Roman Empire. It was really a very, very valuable item that, again, only the G- Judeans knew how to provide. But... um but more than that, so it was really like a symbol of sovereignty. It was a symbol of freedom. And for that to be taken away um, was a double blow. It wasn't just losing the money. It was really like a kick in the teeth, if you will, like that. And Masada also, of course, became... Now, why does Masada... Why do you all run to Masada? Like, there's so many other places in Israel that are slightly easier to get to. And, you know, Masada is like a day, right? You have to leave Jerusalem. You have to drive down to the Dead Sea. Sometimes you stop in Getty on the way back. But it, And if you're here in the summer, it's just brutal. I mean, I've guided there in July. It is hot. So, but, so why the pull to Masada? So I connected this to when Masada was excavated. Masada was excavated in, from 1963 to 1965 by Yigal Yadin. And what was uncovered there were scrolls, were like, you know, parts of the Bible. Um, and the, of course, the most significant one was the Ezekiel, uh, the, the vision of the dry bones, right? That like the, there's a valley of dry bones and God will breathe life into them and they will rise anew, which many people took as the prophecy being fulfilled of now you have an Israel right after from Auschwitz, from the Holocaust, and you're coming into Israel with an army and people can fight and, and the Jews can live anew. So it was a very emotional dig for many reasons. Things that were, f- things were found there that seemed to buttress Josephus's, um, Josephus's narrative of what happened there, like lots with, you know, people's names on it. And, and there was a mikvah for the first time, there was a kosher mikvah found there, meaning that the, the ritual baths, um, there's a certain amount of water that's supposed to be in them, arba'im se'ah, a 40 se'ah, a volume. And you actually had mikvaot were found on Masada, and the chief rabbi went down of Israel at the time went down there and decreed that it was a kosher mikvah. So there, so there's this like you know religious connection. What we were doing then, and we're still doing it now. And these people were still devout, even though the temple is destroyed. Remember, this is an incredibly chaotic, insane time. What's happening here? Um, and so the, the dig took on this, this really like a myth, the myth of Masada for a while, conscripts into the army were brought up there, you know, Gamla will not fall again. It was really seen as, as heroism. And now, but my, my read on this is when the dig was done, because I am, as some of you know, a maniac for context. It's not just what happens. Why did it happen? And why at that particular time? Like when people look back at this time and they're going to try and figure out what was going on here and the context, although you know what, this might even stump. Yeah, never mind. Let's not just, let's not go into how crazy the world is today and how historians are going to deal with what happened here. But 
the dig happens after the Eichmann trial, after um, one of you know the worst Nazis had been put on trial, and the only person that is put to death here in Israel in 1961 and 62. And for the first time, a lot of Israelis are hearing about the atrocities of the Holocaust. Believe it or not, a lot of it had not been talked about during the 50s. Um, the survivors to a great degree, shut down. Some of them, you know, made to feel like, why didn't you fight back? That's not what Jews do because we're developing this new Jew here. Um, A lot of them because they just couldn't speak about it. It was just way too traumatic to speak about, which is totally understandable. A lot of people didn't want to talk about it because I'm sure people did things during the war that they really didn't want like their granddaughter to know. And that's also totally understandable. So believe it or not, but a lot of people really did not know what had happened in Europe in the 1940s. And now it's coming out uh, in the Eichmann trial. Plus, there's no water security here. There's no physical security here. Um, Israel has really no friends, not a strong country, still reeling from the debacle of the 1956 Sinai campaign, refugees coming from close to a million Jews who were thrown out of the, the Arab world in North Africa, um, just because they were Jews and they're coming here with their trauma with pretty much nothing. And they have to be integrated into an Israeli society and into, um, an Israeli leadership, and this is a whole other discussion, that still thinks this is going to be a little European country and hasn't yet come to terms with the fact that those potential European Jews are no longer walking on this earth. And what you're going to have now is a Middle Eastern country, not just because of the location, but because the the over 50% of the population here now within just a few years, becomes our Middle Easterners, our Jews from Iraq and, and Libya and Morocco, etc., who come here um, as they're forced out of, out, of, uh, out of the mainly Muslim world. So there's just a lot going on here, and I definitely think that that impacts how Masada is seen and, and really the, the great importance that's put on that story without minimizing the story. But I do believe that it took on a greater importance than perhaps it would have had the dig been done at a different time. But it comes right at a time where the people here need, need the story of heroism and Yigal Yadin really, you know, makes that happen. So that's just a little bit just wanted to give you a little bit of, of a glimpse into, well, not just the report that I wrote, which was obviously much more detailed than I just told you, but but the um, Masada, the connection to Afar Simon, uh, and I guess you could say like, yeah, well, it still follows the money, right? And the Romans, uh, yeah, I'm sure they wanted to get rid of the embers of Jewish resistance, but they also wanted to make sure their supply line for this precious commodity um, stayed stayed open. And so, it's kind of a, a relook um, based on also new science and new um, new examining of things that we have found um, and just kind of a review of a story that we think we all know, but maybe there is a different reason if it happened. And that's also unclear if it happened. Josephus was not here. So he hears about it in like second or third hand. And, um, and it's interesting because, you know, these days we have so much information, which doesn't mean that that's good. Most of the information that we're getting is, is also wrong or has an agenda. And we are to a great degree being manipulated so often with the things that we're hearing. Um, if it's in the news, it's because somebody wants it to be in the news. That's not necessarily what's really happening. And I think we all know that. We're trying to feel our way through 
and, you know, trying to live in some way with some kind of truth and be able to, even in democracies, being able to make some kinds of decisions about, you know, who our leadership is going to be, uh, as opposed to in other countries where they can't even, don't even have the privilege of deciding. And we're all kind of like muddling our way through. But I just thought this was really a fascinating glimpse at what happened many, many years ago in a place that is very uh, special to many of us and familiar to many of us, but kind of a different um, a kind of a different look as to why it might have happened and um, some of the emotions behind it and like, you know, why the people did certain things. So, so I just wanted to share that with you. Um, and, uh, and I hope that if you're familiar with Masada, it gives you a slightly different perspective. And, uh, and that is it. So thank you for letting me like be a tour guide for a few minutes and share some ideas. It's just not the same when it's this monologue as opposed to being with people and standing in the place and getting questions. I always get great questions from my tourists, always adding something that I hadn't necessarily thought of or from their own life experience, sharing something that illuminates it for me. And I just love that, <laughs> that back and forth uh, and, and learning from everyone. So with that, we are done with rejuvenation for today. Um, and, uh, thank you to Tabitha and to Ben for always putting out the show and to all of you, wherever you are, just be well. And, uh, I will hopefully, hopefully be back next week. Eve Harrow rejuvenation on the land of Israel network. Happy to hear from you. You can write to me, um, Eve at the land of Israel. Dot org, I think. If not, EV, then you can write to eve.harrow with one R, H-A-R-O-W, at gmail.com and love to get your feedback. Take care, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Goodbye for now. Let's try to use our time wisely to promote the truth about what is going on here, the reality here in the Jewish state of Israel. Join Josh Haston every Monday for Israel Uncensored. If we didn't have Iron Dome, more Jews in Israel would be hurt or injured or, God forbid, killed. Israel would have to respond more forcefully to attacks, and that would result in more lives being lost. Gaza, the Temple Mount, anti-Semitism, COVID, the Knesset, and more. Another example of Israel contributing to the world it's not hard to find these stories each and every week an Israeli company coming out with the latest technologies to improve quality of life for people all over the world in so many different fields. That's Israel Uncensored with Josh Haston on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com.